Hi guys, and welcome to a podcast where we all researched a different neighborhood in Philadelphia. Um, we have all have different kind of information discussing, you know, the, the history, the origins, the different kind of people, where it is today, and I hope you enjoy. But to start it off, we're going to kick it over to Josh. So I was covering uh, southwest Philadelphia. It's about 10 square miles. As of the 2010 census, um, about 120,000 people living in it. It's typically described as uh, the part of West Philly that's uh, south of Baltimore. It was formerly known as a King's Essing Township. In early settler times, there were groups of English, Dutch, and Swedish. Another big road in that area is Woodland Ave. And Woodland Ave used to be referred to as King's Highway. Um, it actually took um, Lenape trails and connected it to the settlers' roadways and created a way to connect the southern region with the main city. Originally, the land was actually very spaced out. There was a man, James Colton. He owned 400 acres of that area. John Bartram was also a notable figure in the area, very influential um, Bartram's Garden is still there today. They do community events. You can go tour the grounds. Of course, back in John Bartram's day, the area was known for being just arable land to do farming on. Over time, industrialization changed the use of the land, and it started to be used for lumber yards. It started to be used for manufacturing chemicals, things such as paint. Also, by the early 20th century, a lot of working class neighborhoods were developed, um, which, you know, a lot of those houses are still up when you drive through. Something else that's notable too about Southwest Philly is that the uh, Philadelphia International Airport is located down there. In 2019, the airport served over 33 million passengers, which was actually a record uh, for the airport's history. It's the 20th busiest airport in the United States. The airport actually is on land that historically is known as uh, Hog Island. The history sort of goes back to 1680 when uh, European settlers, they actually purchased that land from the Lenape. And then over time it was developed with, uh, they, they built dams to prevent water from coming in to turn the swamp area into grazable land for farming. And it got its name because uh, farmers actually let the pigs roam free. During World War I, the government contracted a company called uh, the American International Shipbuilding Company um, to build a ships and a, a shipyard there. It was the largest shipyard in the world at the time. In 1930, Philly, as a city, purchased uh, Hog Island for a total of $3 million. And it wasn't until really after the 1940s when the airport really began to serve the city, because up until that point, people went to the Camden Central Airport. So it had a huge impact on the city um, for mobility, commerce, all of that. Thank you, Josh, for that. I want to take it back in history just a little bit and talk about the historical aspect of Strawberry Mansion. I assume that when you hear Strawberry Mansion, you think of this big, beautiful house known as Somerville. 
It was built in 1789 by abolitionist and lawyer William Lewis, and since has gone under construction with added wings and secret passageways. Lewis was involved in the drafting and passage of an act for the gradual abolition of slavery in 1780, and this was one of the first known legal actions toward the abolition of slavery in the U.S. Now, this historical site eventually was turned into a restaurant and a picnic location for tourists to come visit the area, but it should be noted that Strawberry Mansion are hometowns for R&B singer Jasmine Sullivan and rapper Meek Mill. I think Meek Mill is going to be highlighted a great deal in this conversation. I want to bring up that he did graduate from Strawberry Mansion, and since his fame, he's made efforts to rebuild and improve his old neighborhood. Last year alone, he renovated parks and basketball courts where he grew up, costing about $500,000. And um, it should be noted also that this area is known in Philadelphia to be struck by poverty. In his early life, Meek Mill has developed a record but before all of that fortune and fame he formed a rap group with three of his best friends called the bloodhounds they bought blank cds and jewel cases at kinko's and encouraged their friends to burn songs that they recorded and distribute them amongst people they knew when he was 18 while walking to a corner store armed meek mill was arrested for illegally possessing a firearm and was beaten up by the police and because of this beating, his lips and his eyes were really swollen, and it was reported that one of his braids were ripped out of his head. He was charged with assaulting the police after two cops gave a statement against him in the case, saying he chased them down with the gun and tried to kill the officers. January 24th, 2007. Meek tells the story that he's getting ready to go to the supermarket. What happens next? My stepson was there at the time, and the first thing I heard him saying, the feds outside or he said they got me they got me they got me they got me when i first ran to the door they was running up my steps like they literally like used him as like a battering ram to like bust him through the door it was like three cops like one of like two of them had his feet and one of them like had his arms and they basically like used his head as a battering ram what did they do with Meek once they got him inside the house? Mainly they was like targeting Meek. I don't know why they was targeting him so much. I'm not sure the cop named the big guy. He was the biggest one out of them all, the one that was like 6'4". At one point in time, Meek was in the kitchen. He was pounding on him, just hitting him and hitting him. So one time I looked and he hit Meek and I seen Meek's eyes closed like he was asleep. And before he could really like, like before Meek's head hit the ground, the guy hit him again which actually woke me back up. And there was another officer, if I'm not mistaken, I think his name was Graham. He had like mm -hmm. a bald head of mm -hmm. uh, him. I remember him, cause he was mainly, the, he was the one that was, when he was checking people, I remember seeing mm -hmm. him definitely taking money out of people's pockets and all that. Mm -hmm. So not in the plastic bag or nothing, they take our money out of our pockets and put it in their pocket. Only thing I could think about is, for real, I guess they had a bigger plan than what we knew about. He was then placed on probation. Um, and when you look up this story, you can see in his mugshot that was spread all over the place, the damage and the amount of harm that was inflicted on him from these cops. He later violated his probation for popping wheelies in the streets of Philadelphia, which I think is something that is part of the culture. I've always seen it growing up when I used to live in Northeast Philly. And um, it was almost very normal, but he was sent to prison for seven months and he was released on good behavior. After he was released, he became an activist for change in the criminal justice system. 
I was able to obtain an interview with the few students that attended Strawberry Mansion High School, and they discussed the amount of fights and violence that make the area an undesirable visiting area, aside from the historic building, Strawberry Mansion. Sometimes it happens. Yeah. A lot. It's usually when, like, a conflict occurs, it's never, like, a discussion, an argument, or, like, a fight. It's always, like, that. it always escalates. No, or like a fight will break out at the park or something, or an argument on the basketball court. Then I always tell my brothers like, if you yeah. see an argument happen on the basketball court, that means you weren't going. Home. You know the tone. Like, of you can voices. tell. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. You know, like the difference. So I'm like, listen, if that happens, we're going home. Like it's not like, oh, let's wait yeah. and see if no, there's going to be a conflict. It's better you know, safe than sorry. You go away from it. Yeah. So do you guys have like a time y'all need to be in the house or on the block? Go outside. <laughs> like, like. <laughs> if you go outside, your mom will tell you what time you gotta be in the house. I gotta be in the house by 10 o'clock. The area has definitely changed over the course of 50 to 60 years. What was once a predominantly Jewish neighborhood is now considered a low-income African-American area. Many of the Jewish people that once occupied North Philly eventually moved out to areas like Oxford Circle, Overbrook Park, and West Oak Lane, you know, the Mount Airy area. The synagogues that were left behind from that move have transformed into Christian and Baptist places of worship to accommodate the newer wave of religion for the African-American community. Both of them haven't been able to withstand the test of time because only six popular synagogues remain standing today. Benai Mache Synagogue on 31st Street, founded in 1925, now houses the Redeemed Baptist Church. The building survived the firebombing attempt in October of 1953. To say the least, many of these standing synagogues have changed their architecture after World War II. They are now called Jewish community centers that allow worship to all, and the newly ordained rabbis changed the architecture to increase interactivity and usefulness within the community. Thanks, Kiana. The reaction I got from people when I mentioned that I was researching Strawberry Mansion was generally not a positive one. The neighborhood is known mostly throughout Philadelphia for its dangerous reputation. I recently listened to a podcast called Invisible Slash Visible, where the hosts interviewed several students of Strawberry Mansion High School. They participated in an activity where the students would step forward if a statement applied to them. Do you enjoy time with your family? Eventually, they were told to step forward if they felt safe in their neighborhood. Okay, neighborhood. Do you feel safe in your neighborhood? The silence is telling. Strawberry Mansion is located in between two highly gentrified areas, Brewery Town to the south and East Falls to the northwest. Instead of making things safer, though, the construction of newer, more expensive housing is threatening to push residents out of their homes and even erasing parts of Strawberry Mansion's history and culture. A mural of John Coltrane, who lived in Strawberry Mansion for years and composed much of his music there, 
was destroyed in 2014 to allow for the development of a new apartment complex by the Penrose Company. After receiving backlash, the company donated to Mural Arts so the mural could be repainted a few blocks away. Ironically, this mural is now being covered up by newly constructed condos, and once again, the developer offered $25,000 to have it repainted elsewhere. The stories of John Coltrane's time spent in his Strawberry Mansion home with Mary Alexander, otherwise known as his beloved cousin Mary, should not be forgotten. It was here, in what is now dubbed the Coltrane House, that Coltrane overcame his heroin addiction, launched his career, and even wrote a piece for Alexander called Cousin Mary. It was this same Cousin Mary who fought to keep Coltrane's legacy alive in Strawberry Mansion. She lived out most of her days there, formed the John W. Coltrane Cultural Society, and held a series of tours and backyard concerts there to spread her love for jazz music and her cousin's work after his death in 1967. Alexander even got the property listed as a National Historical Landmark. Since Alexander's passing in 2019, the house has begun falling into disrepair. Recently, the property has made its way on to the 2020 Pennsylvania at-risk list. Unfortunately, this designation does not mean that any funding will be granted towards fixing the landmark, but is meant to generate interest from the public in the hopes that somehow, someone, or some group will find a way to pay for restoration. Strawberry Mansion should be recognized as an area with great historical significance. A jazz legend, as well as the family that he loved and cared for, resided in this neighborhood. This is the neighborhood where he struggled and where he thrived. The history of Strawberry Mansion should not be neglected in the same way the Coltrane House was, and should not be erased or covered up in the same way that both of the Diamond Street murals have been. This neighborhood has a rich and interesting past that hopefully, someday, will be fully appreciated. Hi, I'm Max Troutman, and welcome to my discussion of Only Oak Lane. Now, this is a neighborhood in Philadelphia that is very, it's pretty much the most northernmost point um, of Philadelphia. So it's considered North North Philadelphia. Um, and it includes places like East Oak Lane, West Oak Lane, Olney. A few important topics to talk about when talking uh, and thinking about Olney Oak Lane is really like how it came to be. And um, when talking about how it came to be, um, it's really important to think about why the people why people live there how it got its identity um and what people do there and um starting on that it really um became a place for immigrants to go at the time um so people came here looking for work during the industrialization and they all just settled there a lot of these people um were jewish immigrants they were jamaican they were asian they were latin but immigrants really looking for work decided to settle around here due to the numerous factories around Olney Oak Lane. There are a few plants there, uh, but most importantly, Heinz Manufacturing Company. They have a huge factory there, and a lot of people went there looking for jobs. That was the main factory there. It's still standing right now. Um, but most of these people moved there, and they built the identity for the community. They moved there for work, but their children and their children and so on and so forth, they really were the ones who built up this identity of the place. Um, it is important to know why these immigrants um, really came here. And I think that that 
um, immigration in general is a good topic. But for only Oak Lane, as I said earlier and alluded to, they came here for work. So with all that um, being said, it's I think it's important to talk about what the identity is of only Oak Lane and the neighborhood in general. So today there's a lot of articles online that you can find things, but um, it's my job to you know inform you guys. So my my understanding of only Oak Lane is that there's a lot of people here that are immigrants, but they really built a bubbling. You know, their their ancestors were immigrants, but they really built a bubbling community here. So there's a lot of it's a very great place to catch a good bite to eat right now. And there's a lot of different cultures that really mixed and became and created this identity. So there's a lot of Jamaican barbecue places. There's a lot of Korean places. There's a lot of Mexican places. Um, and it's a really cool place to go if you and your friends are looking for a place to eat. Um it's a very, it's a pretty safe neighborhood. Uh, it's very North North Philly, and a lot of these um, immigrants had children and their children and their children, and they built up this identity of a very big melting pot area of, of Philadelphia and um, Pennsylvania in general. So, it's a really cool place to go. Um, well, I think it's important to note that Noam Chomsky was born in East Oak Lane, which is a part of Olney Oak Lane. He was born to Jewish immigrants. And now, if you don't know Chomsky, he's one of the most influential people in modern science, and he's a linguist. He's very important. Now, he was born to some Jewish immigrants, which means that he was a first-generation American, and um, he obviously went on to have great success. He went to the University of Penn, but he was raised in East Oak Lane, and I think that's really important to, you know, it really goes and shows, you know, that he grew up in that community of first-generation immigrants or, you know, people looking for work. It was really a safe haven for people to go and live um, and prosper and meet people and thrive and build a really great community and have a great identity. The land of Delaware County was explored by Henry Hudson in 1609, and then over the next few decades, it was variously claimed and settled by the Swedes, the English, and even the Dutch. Its original inhabitants were the Lenape people, who were Native Americans. What I found interesting was that the largest land battle of the Revolutionary War was fought near Brandywine Creek in Delco in September of 1777. In late early September of 1777, British troops under General William Howe begin their advance from Head of Elk, Maryland, toward Philadelphia. And Washington is faced with a very challenging and very difficult situation. He can simply try to harass the British, withdraw before them, move back into the countryside, and slow them down, but accept that ultimately we're not going to be able to stop them. They're going to take Philadelphia if they need to. That might be the more sensible strategy from some points of view because then he'll be able to preserve his army to fight another day. But Washington instinctively will always look for the more aggressive posture. He'll always be looking for the main chance to inflict a drubbing on the British. And he continues Delco was sparsely populated at this time with about 100 or so settlers. A notable person from Delaware County today is Tina Fey, but something interesting that I found out about the area is that Newland Mill, which was first built in 
1704, is still standing and operating today. And now we go to a discussion about what everyone learned while looking and researching all these different neighborhoods in Philadelphia. The history was very educational. There's so much that I didn't know. Um, I mean, especially I've not lived here all that long. So it's a lot of neighborhoods that not only have I not been to, but I don't know the history of. To be honest. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, like, I, um, you know, with my uh, section, Delco, I am usually someone to uh, to say a few rude things about the county, just, you know, as a joke, because that is the running joke about Delco and Delco people. But as also a history nerd, I uh, was really uh, intrigued at everything I discovered about my county as well. It was definitely educational as a person that's, you know, coming just to Philly for college and whatnot. So it was cool to learn about all of our different neighborhoods. Yeah. I feel like I was the eyeball out because for the first time, I didn't realize like Strawberry Mansion was like an actual huge area, like geographically. So I only thought Strawberry Mansion High School was just that immediate area and it actually spans out to be pretty big and I didn't realize all the history that went into it and then eventually starting to change over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean there's definitely an element of just uh learning things that uh completely didn't know. I mean, one thing for me like just being able to kind of map out the how much Southwest changed from going from farms to an airport and like super dense packed neighborhoods um it's just you know if you kind of there's always the the trope of taking someone from the past in a time machine and like showing them the future and it terrifying them and i feel like that would be incredibly jarring because yeah, you was that don't you don't even take them to 2021 take them to 1950 and it's like an insane change from uh 18th century i was gonna say was that like a, a quick transition it was. It seems like a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's kind of the whiplash of the industrial revolution, though. Is that you, within two people's lifespans, everything completely changed? Uh, I mean, we're even getting that now as millennials. Like, where where that middle ground between the change? Because like we could watch stuff from the '80s and remember, like, oh yeah, people didn't always have phones, mm-hmm. and also recognize it now. But then like. I, I, I'm constantly amazed to see kids born like after 9-11 that like talk about stuff and I'm like, oh, right. Like you're, nine, you're 19 and 20 now. Like, <laughs> shit. I remember yeah. in the shop right and getting yodels on 9-11. <laughs> well, uh, number one, Josh, I'd like to say you are uh, a millennial. I think uh, Lily uh, and myself and Maxwell are Zoomers. Yeah, I'm actually 20. <laughs> You're 20? I'm 22. Yeah. Okay. Wow, so where do I fall? I'm 23 going on 24. I don't I wouldn't I think we're in like the gray area, Kiana. Yeah, Kiana's um because my sister's also like 23, 24. You're on the cusp of being a millennial, but you're still technically Gen Z. Yeah, I think the cutoff is like if you remember 9-11. Uh I remember yeah. like the year after 9-11. I don't remember where I was on 9-11 though. It's yeah. funny you say that. I just had this conversation with my dad a couple of days ago. I'm like, oh, where was I during 9-11? He was like, yeah. Oh, you were you're a Zoomer. You were, you were in a daycare. I was like, uh, yeah. in Pensacola? He was oh, like, God, yeah. I was in first grade on 9-11 now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
I, I literally got taken out of school and then went to ShopRite and told some other random kid that was my age that the world was ending with a smile. Oh, <laughs> yes, you did. imagine being able to remember 9-11. Wow. What a goal. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, so happy about the world ending. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's been dragged out a little bit, but we're getting there <laughs> from 9-11 to now. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, I just, you know, I, I think that like we're in a moment that uh, we're getting to see a lot of rapid change but i just looking at the like southwest just the amount of change that has gone in that area is yeah and mine mine's like similar to yours josh uh when like when i was doing it um the rapid change just from like like you said the industrial revolution and just to see how people built um a community especially like in olney oak lane um which was my neighborhood it was there the, it's built off of um a community really built off of immigration uh, because people were looking for work in the industrial revolution. But like you said, it's crazy to see like the rapid change of, you know, how like before the plants were there and then the plants were there and then like to where they are now, as far as the community they built. But yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty wild to see that. Yeah. I'd agree. Something similar is happening with strawberry mansion, but to like a way like less, you know, extent, um, there were there was a mural of John Coltrane, which I mentioned earlier, um, built in like 2000, that lasted like a good 14 years, and then it got knocked down to create new apartment complexes. And then um, pretty much immediately after that, <laughs> uh, it was it was moved because the company got like extreme backlash from the the surrounding area for good reason. But then once it was moved, um, it got covered up by more like condos and apartments and stuff so then <laughs> the developer just pretty much offered twenty five thousand dollars to anyone who would paint it somewhere else outside of that area that's crazy i mean also like it's it kind of helps show i mean like you know there's statues and there's monuments and stuff but murals can be just as powerful as ter in terms of like locking history into a physical place which is pretty yeah um, yeah and unfortunately like um, there's no guarantee that they will stay standing. Yeah, I yeah. My, my fiance actually did paint one of the murals in Philly, and so like that was an interesting experience getting to see that process. And like, but it's one of those things that when it's done, there's no guarantee that it will ever stay. And like, even even because especially with paint and stuff, a lot of the murals are actually like a, a really tightly stretched uh like uh, not canvas but like a sort of polymer like banner that they'll stretch over the buildings and sometimes it's it, it like those they can literally just unroll them or, or like roll them back up and then just they're they're off the building whereas like i know at least hers was like a lot of paint <laughs> so like right. it's gonna have to be repainted and like all this stuff so it's a completely different kind of maintenance than just a statue that you polish like rocky's forehead every month or whatever like, <laughs> you know like it's it's definitely interesting but i mean especially coltrane like what a fucking that's like a titan of western culture <laughs> exactly yeah and he he produced like so much of his stuff while he was in strawberry mansion so it's i don't know yeah. shocking i think strawberry mansion is really um, it underwent like a really big transition to where like kind of picking back off of what you said uh lily it's like there was a big Jewish community and eventually during the civil rights movement, a lot of the Jewish people in that community decided to go elsewhere and spread out 
farther away from the city going into the suburbs. And a lot of those synagogues that were left are now transitioned into Christian and Baptist churches. So it's like, it's interesting to see how, you know, you walk down the street and these buildings are still standing there, but it's now in a predominantly black community and the area itself isn't taken care of. It's low income area from the city. And, you know, I think it's kind of surprising and how much that really affects the community. So much of the older buildings and that being taken care, like taken down to accommodate the flood of people that are still going into, into the Strawberry Mansion. It's, it's interesting to see. Yeah, I actually saw a bill was recently proposed by uh, Daryl Clark, pretty much banning uh, certain building materials, sort of to keep that historical look around Strawberry Mansion. That's, I, as someone who has worked in construction, I love people who actually care about the material. Because <laughs> there are so many new builds, especially in like the Fishtown area that like, it's like this, I used to call them empire houses because like I just thought of like the Star Wars empire, like the bad guys, that they were just like, yeah. like sleet, like gray, black, white, like just, and it looked like plastic panels on the front. And like those, the roofs would be leaking within the first year, things would be falling off. Like some of the metal panels would actually, they would bend back a little bit, like when it would be too windy. So like immediately those houses it just looked like you bought like a burner phone from the gas station and stuff and like <laughs> yeah I mean like it's crazy not only that it just looks strange because you position that like right next to like a historical like a brick building or something like made of stone and then there's just this like giant gray slab next to it it looks very strange yeah yeah so definitely I mean this is a city that's built out of like wood and brick <laughs> wood brick and stone so like it's uh that's definitely good to i mean i've even seen a trend where they're doing it's kind of like a fake brick where they put like a it's like um oh do you remember those things that uh it was, it was like the different colored beads that you would make designs and then press it with an iron i've yes. seen that on like cheddar.com yeah. where it's like pre-built bricks so they basically so you literally just build your own house it's like it, it's like a, a plastic backbone frame that you lay up against the wall and mm -hmm. the bricks slot into place and then you can just like seal it up around them um but it's yeah. technically fake brick but at the end of the day it's still aesthetically brick <laughs> so like at least you know at least it's like a happy life if you're gonna lie to people it's a happy accident it's a ha yeah happy accident there you go or uh, uh the, what's the teacher version of that uh, learning opportunity yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah um so yeah i mean i think like a, a common theme that i've heard from everything is that industrialization has completely like most american cities reshaped the landscape it reshaped where people live who has access to the center of the city who's on the proximity and outside of it um and I, you know in a lot of ways i've kind of just had the sense um that in a it, Philly, Philly to me is like like the closest analog to Philly is actually in the South, and it's like New Orleans. Like, I've uh, there's a lot of things that are different between the two cities, obviously, but like they are in spirit very similar. And I also think that like Mummers and stuff is like, you know, Philly's version of Mardi Gras, um, as problematic as it can be <laughs> with some of the the groups and stuff, but like. There's a lot of traditions that are about like uh, 
celebration and stuff that are um, that do kind of carry over that not a lot of cities have that I've seen. So like for the Northwest and or for the <laughs> Northwest, where the fuck are we? For the Northeast, this is definitely um, it's a unique place. And I feel like everything we learn about it uh, kind of just helps add to that fold. <laughs> Philadelphia is definitely a culturally historic foreground that everybody can associate a personal experience or a very pivotal time in history as, you know, someplace where memories are just able to be built. Everyone has a different version of Philadelphia because there's so many different boroughs and areas within just a very diverse city. So I think Philly is one of those places that can withstand the test of time and still maintain a brotherly love culture that most people hear about today. I remember meeting some old guy, um, <laughs> some just some old guy, uh, and like I think he was like driving Uber or something, and he and he was like a, like a Philly lifer, and he was just he was like Philly is a, a small town that doesn't know it's a big city, and like <laughs> just how like the neighborhoods really are, they're just their own worlds. There's just so much happening um, that you could you know drive 10 20 minutes and it's a completely different um just vibe and like just every neighborhood's very uh distinct but there are the over overarching sort of colonial industrial histories like the dutch the swedish and the english that kind of touch on the design and like germantown and like all that stuff like literally very much uh a lot of the ownership is just like wealthy white colonial names and stuff even like like for me it was crazy to learn about gray's ferry being named after the like a family with the last name and they owned the trolley or the ferry that went across <laughs> so they owned the town so they get to put their name on it like lovely yeah i just think that's cool because like like doing this it's cool to see like because obviously as we grew up and stuff we learn about you know like the benjamin franklins and the uh like the quakers and whatnot but like it's cool to see it to learn a lot about the post-industrial revolution stuff where it really started to get super diverse and you had all these types of people coming as opposed to like, you know, the Quakers and the heroes of the revolution or whatever. I think it's just cool to see um, kind of that dynamic and the, the, the diversity really come out. Thank you guys for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed our discussion and all of our little history lesson here. Um, see you later. <laughs>